Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, uh, where we delve into the MPS markets and what's going on in DFM portfolios. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on Sister Title Investors Chronicle. And uh, today with me, I have Asset Allocator contributing editor David Thorpe, but also Joseph Wilkins, uh, another contributor to Asset Allocator. Um, so both, uh, good to have you here. David, I wanted to start with you. We've been looking in recent weeks at kind of cautious portfolios, what's been going on there. Um, I suppose they've been unexpectedly topical in the last year, given what's happened in bond markets and so on. But what have we been seeing in terms of activity in recent times? Sure. Well, as you say, David, uh, a real feature of uh, 2022 was that for many investors, the cautious portfolio did worse, despite it being a down market, than the uh, than the more adventurous portfolios. In 2023, that's kind of recurred in terms of where people are allocating. There has, perhaps understandably, been a a reduction in the average exposure to equities uh, since the start of the year in cautious portfolios. But actually, it's not a dramatic reduction at all. At the start of the year, the average allocation to equities was 22% and it's now 20.5%, which is, you know, not not, not a dramatic uh, change at all. And it, that uh, those average numbers should also be seen in the context of being distorted by t- the very large equity allocations of Close Brothers, at 49% of their cautious portfolio and 45% from Rathbones. That's 20 percentage points ahead of the next DFM cautious portfolio that we monitor. And how about kind of other asset classes? I mean, we, we discussed kind of bonds. That's been a real, you know, added a bit of a, a bit of spice, a bit of volatility to the average cautious portfolio. But how have DFMs been responding to... I suppose, what we've been seeing there in terms of kind of price action. Sure. Well, yes, indeed. At the headline level, the overall exposure has remained static at around uh, 55% uh, since the start of the year to now. But what has changed, as you alluded to, Dave, is the government bond exposure has has ticked up. And and that's actually quite a substantial increase, really. It was 15% of the average cautious portfolio in government bonds at the end of October, compared with 11% at the start of the year. There was also an increase uh, in the in the balanced portfolios, for what it's worth. Uh, the government bond exposure increased from 5% at the start of the year to 7% today. I, I suppose that will be kind of an interesting thing to, to monitor, because on the one hand, of course, if people have been, as people have been arguing, kind of fixed income looks very attractive and... You know, theory, if you can stomach the volatility, you can make some good returns. But then if we do see cautious portfolios slightly load up more on that asset class and then we see more of the volatility for a, for a decent chunk of time, then that can, I suppose, potentially kind of unsettle some of the investors in those portfolios. That can perhaps change some of the, the risk profile almost of, of those portfolios too. Absolutely. I mean, I guess that's the that's the challenge. One could, as 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 you mentioned, simply say, you know, if I can get five percent on a on a short term govy, you know, mm. that's wonderful. And okay, there might be price volatility on the way, but maybe the balanced client or the slightly more adventurous client doesn't need to care about that uh, volatility. And if you hold, you'll get a pull to power anyway. But the cautious uh, client, they may may be the client that is most sensitive 
to observing sharp price movements in their portfolio. And that presents a real dilemma for their financial advisor or their DFM because, you know, do they have that conversation with them and say, look, there is volatility, but you're getting 5% to write that out? Or do do they do something else and try to find a genuinely lower volatility asset class if such a thing exists right now? Yeah, and it has been hard to find that kind of uh, magic asset class, hasn't it? So um, Indeed, because even you yeah. know some of the other things that might be at the headline level, lower volatility won't give you the five percent. So uh, you know it's quite the it's quite the sacrifice to make, I guess, to own, for example, gold. I guess is a probably conforms as a low a lower volatility asset class, but gold famously doesn't have a yield and traditionally doesn't perform as well when bond yields are higher or when especially the US uh, T-bill is higher because it competes with the T-bill for the margin of safety. And if the T-bill is offering you five and gold is offering you zero, then that becomes a different uh, conversation. I guess it's also worth mentioning, Dave, on the uh, on the equity side, some of those US tech stocks has been mentioned to me by a number of DFMs that those famous, um, well, it used to be the Fangs, I guess there's now seven of them. They're sometimes called the Magnificent Seven. Some of those things have actually performed uh, quite well this year and actually are almost viewed by some DFMs as being utility-like in uh, in nature. One, one particular DFM that I spoke with recently mentioned Microsoft. Uh, people will always pay money to buy their licenses to use Microsoft Word, etc., in the same way that they would pay for electricity. And if you think about it like that, then, um, you know, something like Microsoft, maybe even Netflix or something, those things have a role for the modern consumer alongside that of um, traditional utilities. And therefore, they may be a defensive asset class. And maybe that's why the equity allocations have remained as robust as they have. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. We could counter those stocks, of course, so really quite a battle last year, didn't they? Well, well ab- 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 absolutely, they uh, they did. Yeah, and it would be um, it would be, I guess, interesting to see what the sort of two year or performance number for those things are. But but they've certainly been uh, re- re- resilient as the interest rate cycle has has matured. They sort of fell when people were worried about inflation and interest rates, but oh. then came through uh, the other side. Look, the other argument, I guess, which many DFMs would make is, can you really group all of those things together? You could argue that um, Meta, which which owns Facebook and Instagram, uh, is basically makes revenue from advertising, and advertising is deeply cyclical and not a not a utility revenue stream at all. Whereas, as I say, Microsoft's B two B and licenses and advertising is not very significant. So maybe, maybe that is. That is utility, but at the moment the market certainly seems to to view those as being of a of a piece. I suppose also, I mean, at least in the context of cautious portfolios, and I don't know if that's how DFMs discuss these stocks, but you can also see these stocks as kind of long duration equities. So, particularly in a cautious portfolio, you're arguably holding something that's going to hurt at the same time that your bond exposure is hurting. Absolutely yes. If you're owning if you're owning long bonds and and the magnificent seven equities, then you're you're going very long duration. One of the reasons mm. why those stocks might have done a little bit better in 2023 is if people feel that the uh, interest rate cycle has reached a peak, then that should be more attractive for those long duration equities um, than earlier in the cycle when people don't know where the where the peak is. But but it's an excellent it's an excellent uh, observation, Dave. That um, 
is that if you own particularly long bonds, which, which are the traditional safe haven asset class, and then you own those type of long duration equities, you really are uh, making a big duration call. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so turning elsewhere, Joseph, I'd like to sort of bring you in here. Um, the team's been doing some work on kind of Japanese uh, equity funds and kind of DFMs, I suppose, success or otherwise, and kind of picking names there. What, what have our kind of findings been on that front? Yeah, we've noticed a real sort of fund selection problem uh, in Japan, especially with um, about a third of the funds that they've selected in Japan delivering bottom quartile returns, which if you compare to the UK, it's we, we only see 9% of those delivering bottom quartile over three years. Um, and so we wondered, you know, what's what's so special about Japan and, and why are they wider the mark here um, and David's got uh, quite a good understanding of the corporate govern governance uh, issue that uh, has not quite been resolved there uh, which sure I mean um, one of the one of the observations that global equity managers have always made is that um, Japanese uh, companies tend to be conglomerates a lot of the capital rather than being returned to shareholders tends to be used to acquire other businesses, other real estate, other property. The Japanese government has been pushing very hard to, to change that behaviour. Some of the allocators that we speak to are very positive on that change. Some are more cautious and say, you know, there have been lots of attempts to do this over the years, but it hasn't really happened. It's also something that, that Joseph picked out in the, um, in the database, I think, uh, that ESG mandates in particular are very underway Japan and that may be on the on the governance uh, question um, but Joseph you were re referring to the DFM's Japan fund picks underperforming is there some context around how the UK uh, average UK fund that a DFM picks or average global fund that a DFM picks and how they perform? In the UK the the fund selections are far better they seem to be uh, really nailing their choices in active equity funds there in Japan, however, we noticed that uh, Bailey Gifford Japanese, that was uh, one of the, the laggards. Um, and we did speak to a few DFMs about whether they wanted to continue with this. And they, they seemed pretty, uh, they were standing by their picks, uh, despite the underperforming results. And, and one fund has had actually quite an uptick in demand from from DFMs, right? Yes, yeah. M&G Japan is, is the new favourite amongst uh, DFMs. Uh, we've noticed that since it came under new management in 2019 that there's been a flurry of buyers, uh, I think it's six, if I remember rightly, um, who've bought into the fund, I think, in the last year. Um, and that performance has really improved since, since the uh, new management. So that seems to be a rare bright spot in a region where fund managers are quite far off the map and indeed and i think the reason that 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 fund may be popular is that uh if all of the economic reform attempts that are happening in japan do play out not just the governance ones but also their attempt to actually engender inflation that should be better for the value type equities in that market and mng is of course famously a value investing shop yeah i suppose one other interesting point is whether you do get situations where um dfms just do cluster and i suppose people who buy funds in general do cluster around kind of funds that are very storied but have at least for the time being kind of come off the boil um you mentioned the, the bailey gifford fund you know used to be very renowned but it's had a bit of a 
bit of, bit of a slump in performance in time. And um, I suppose it can be quite hard for people to move on from those names. And perhaps rightly so, perhaps it will kind of turn things around. But um, yeah, the, the kind of legacy fund issue might also be kind of affecting the success levels in terms of fund picking there. To put that into context, as Joseph mentioned, in the UK, just 9% of the, the funds chosen and the UK equity uh, sectors are bottom quartile on a three-year view, and that compares with obviously a far higher number, as Joseph mentioned in in Japan, which which creates a uh, which which really does highlight, I guess, the challenge of uh, of identifying the good guys in in Japan, where the risks are probably a bit more idiosyncratic than in other markets. Yeah, yeah, I suppose at least um, there is some some compensation for DFMs in that. I'd imagine even the kind of underperforming funds at the minute have enjoyed the you know the big sort of bump we saw this year from the from the market more generally. I mean, there has been, as you say, a very big rally in the top X. Although I think when you current when you adjust for currency, it gets it's not quite as dramatic an uplift, but it is still very substantial. It's still far better than what my own investment portfolio can do, for example. <laughs> Excellent to hear. Um, well, that's that's all really interesting kind of insights, a lot of food for thoughts, um, but I'm afraid that is all we have time for. So I'd just like to thank Joseph and David for um, their time and thank you to you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.